Welcome to the Revenue Engine Podcast. I'm your host, Rosalind Santa Elena, and I am thrilled to bring you the most inspirational stories from revenue generators, innovators, and disruptors, revenue leaders in sales, in marketing, and of course, in operations. Together, we will unpack everything that optimizes and powers the revenue engine. Growth Farm Production. Are you ready? Let's get to it. One of the most common revenue challenges in B2B companies is building and optimizing an integrated sales and marketing revenue engine. But with all of this buzz around the need for better alignment and synergies, is it really that critical? What are the benefits? And how do you even get started? In this episode of the Revenue Engine podcast, Z Jeremick, the CEO at Mass Engines, shares why organizations need to have an aligned and fully integrated sales and marketing structure, how this helps optimize the overall revenue process, and he also gives insightful guidance on how to actually get started. So please take a listen and learn how to power the revenue engine. Super excited to be here today with Z Jeremick, the CEO at Mass Engines. Mass Engines is a company focused on building best in class integrated sales and marketing systems that really help B2B companies drive revenue growth. So welcome Z and thank you so much for joining me. I am so excited to just learn more about your journey and really learn from you. Thank you, Rosalind. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. Well, let's talk. Let's, you know, just dive right in. I mean, let's talk a little bit about your backstory, you know, your career journey prior, I guess, to Mass Engines. Um, you've had just incredibly broad experience in consulting. I saw you also have experience in product and in engineering. Um, so maybe can you share more about your backstory? Sure, sure. Happy to share. So, I mean, I, I started in technology because I've, I've, I'm endlessly fascinated with how technology has continually evolved, uh, not just in the last 20, 30 years, but certainly over, over the last few hundred years, if not more, to enhance our everyday lives. And so I, I studied technology, um, but there was a part of me that was always interested in exploring, again, how do we connect technology to solving actual real problems? Um, and, um, you know, I think like a lot of folks who study technology, I, I mean, I was driven individual, I end up, you know, end up in Silicon Valley, um, spent about seven years there um, and fantastic experience. I mean, professionally, you, you really, you know, definitely the best place to be on earth. Um, <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, I think I certainly had, and I mean, I think I spent about six months as a software engineer. I think that's how long I lasted because the thing, <laughs> what I realized is that, I like to solve problems, but coding itself as a full-time job was a little like, I like to working with people and, you know, and it just was a little too limiting. So needless to say, as a, an engineer who like working with people, I ended up getting into technical sales. Sales kind of were like, he's, that's amazing. That's a rare breed. Let's pull him in. So <laughs> here's in sales. And it was interesting because I think in some ways it, it set the foundation for, for my consulting experience. Because again, really in, in its ideal form, technical sales is about consulting. It's about understanding the challenges that um, any particular prospect is encountering and then being able to connect the products that you know, your company is offering 
with those challenges. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, there can be a little bit of a conflict of interest sometimes, which is why I actually found consulting a lot more interesting because there is no um, hidden agenda, right? There is uh, the, the, the array of tools that you can use uh, is much broader, right? And it can be tools, it can be methodologies, business process, mm -hmm. et cetera, whatever is actually going to solve the problem. So to speed up, I mean, again, uh, I think that, Long story short, um, like you mentioned, I, I kind of had a, I had a, an interesting path, but I think I, eventually I stumbled onto enterprise software. I spent my, my time in Silicon Valley was really in embedded systems, um, a fascinating area, learned a lot. But really for me, where I got really lit up is when I, when I got exposed to enterprise software and all of a sudden things really clicked because all of a sudden here's a perfect example of how technology is being utilized by companies to en enhance their processes, improve results. And this happened at the same time where marketing and sales automation, right? Systems like Eloqua, Marketo, Salesforce.com were flirt, like just starting to really kind of grow. And I was hooked. I was sold because what was fascinating about it, you know, we're not talking, we weren't necessarily talking about some old school systems that were there for accounting purposes, right? We were talking <laughs> about systems that were in many ways aligning with how business was evolving and how people, how the changing nature of how people were buying because of this explosion of information that the internet ushered in. Yeah. So yeah, I was hooked and this, you know, here we are 15 years later and I've learned a lot. Um, and I, I'd like to say it's um, been able to help a number of companies. And I think that um, I feel like the, you know, the potential is huge because I've learned so much mm -hmm. that I've learned what to do and what not to do to really get to the core of the, how, how you actually drive results. So, yeah, yeah. pumped. Yeah, I love that. I love that. You know, I, I think I kind of know where we're going probably with this, but, you know, I think about a lot of times, you know, many companies when I talk to founders and CEOs are, you know, they're created out of a need, right, to as you mentioned, kind of solving a problem or, you know, sometimes there's some type of aha moment, right, that leads to this idea for company. It sounds like it's been just a, sort of a natural progression for you, just kind of in your career and kind of what you gravitate towards really enjoy doing. But I mean, I guess was, you know, how did the idea, I guess, come about for Mass Engines? And maybe what was your original vision? I mean, you've been in the space for over 10 years, right? And so maybe how has that changed? <laughs> yeah, a long time. I, I think what's interesting is that, um, I mean, I, I honestly, like, again, even if you, even the way, you know, you kind of describe our company, right, and what we do, it really, when you look at, it, you know, best in class sales and marketing systems, we, from the start, the idea was, I wanted to build a revenue engine. And it's yeah. interesting, because, you know, like, uh, my entry into kind of the enterprise software space was really when I joined Eloqua as a consultant there. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Eloqua, I feel like, was kind of one of the early movers in the marketing automation space. And in many ways, the, the, the CTO and some of the leadership was really visionary in terms of how they saw the space would evolve and what problems it'd be able to, to solve. And the same year I, I started the company, was they, they published a book. And it was very much the, what influenced me. They published a book called The Revenue Engine. And they outlined the vision for how this, uh, how the technology, the marketing and sales automation technology was going to evolve and how it can be leveraged to actually drive business results. And I was sold because I was already in the space and I was seeing the things that they were writing about. 
Um, and as a consultant, I could see the potential if only we could push a few steps further. The reality though, you know, at, when I was at Eloqua, you know, ultimately any software company, your ultimate goal is to help people adopt your software. Not, you know, there's only so much you can do with helping maximize the results. So that was really, that was it for me. I mean, I essentially, um, for me, the decision was very clear. I wanted to focus on building revenue engines and helping take essentially, take it to its ultimate destination, driving real business was driving revenue. And what's mm -hmm. fascinating about it, and that was, that was the theory posted in, you know, like I, I think they postulate in the book is that never before were companies actually able to drive revenue by improving conversions through the funnel systematically, mm -hmm. right? The mm -hmm. traditional ways of growing revenue, hey, you know, let's hire some more sales reps, let's spend some more money on advertising, let's open a new distribution channel. That, those are all of a sudden now, because of how the, the changing nature of the buyer and again, how the technology was evolving to serve them through marketing and sales automation, companies were able to actually systematic, systematically instrument the funnel. And I, I, the way I like to look at it is that bring the discipline of opportunity management further up the funnel, all the way up. And one of the reasons there's so much discipline opportunities management, you can actually improve your conversion, you can measure it so you can do forecasting. If you can do that in the upper funnel, you can forecast a lot further out. And now you can systematically work to improve the conversions in the different stages of the funnel, which will ultimately change how you convert, how much you convert through the funnel and grow revenue. And that's a, I think that's a, an amazing idea. And I've actually, you know, I, that's been a part of our journey. And what, what's amazing, it's a, you know, any great idea, obviously you have to believe in it to really push it. But for yeah. me, the real you know, the zing comes in when you actually see it working. And we've yeah. seen it working time and time again. And to me, this is where I, it just pumps me up even more. It's real. We can <laughs> actually make it work and we can drive results. And so, yeah, that's what powers me up. That's what gets me up in the morning and awesome. um, zings me up. I love that. I love that. Um, you know, there's been so much, you know, you talked about kind of sales and marketing alignment and, you know, systems and things like that. But I think with that, you know, there's just been so much noise and buzz about marketing and sales alignment, you know, obviously how critical it is to optimize the revenue process and that entire customer journey. You know, from your perspective, like why has there been this divide, right, between marketing and sales? And maybe how have you seen it sort of shift over the past, you know, maybe five, 10 years? It's actively shifting, which I'm, I'm really excited about. Um, <laughs> and I think that it has to, and this is why. The reality, I mean, you know, again, we can go you know, to the beginning of time, like, you know, humans, we've evolved to be very defensive in nature. We lived in a very hostile environment, so as a result, defensiveness is you generally like, if you're safe where you are, you don't want to change, right? Because, yeah. hey, change yep. is danger and where we are currently is safe. So if you, I think historically, um, marketing and sales alignment wasn't necessarily relevant because the team and the teams could be siloed because they actually played a different role, right? Marketing traditionally, again, when you look at it, brand and awareness, right? Mm -hmm. Establish kind of the, the how people see the company and make them aware. But once they're aware, it was all, now it's like, it, and it was a pretty hard line. Once they're aware, there's nothing more for marketing to do. Now it's sales comes in. So you can have these silos and they can operate in harmony, if you will, yeah. uh, and be very effective. However, and again, I think that what's interesting is that what's actually drive, it's, it's sometimes, you know, again, there's uh, direct benefits and there's side effects. 
the information explosion that kind of the, the internet and kind of our, our connectedness has 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 ushered in has fundamentally changed how people buy. We're in an era of informed, empowered buyer because buyers have so much access to information. And what's happening is they're increasingly saying, well, okay, I'm aware of your brand, but why should I care? And I don't want to talk to your sales rep because I know that they're, you know, they have an incentive. <laughs> they're gonna to try to sell me. I don't want to be sold. I want to be educated. And so what's happened is that the role of marketing has expanded and yep. the role of marketing and sales as a result, there's, there's a lot of overlap and the alignment is becoming so critical. And so you look at five or 10 years ago, still a pretty new idea, still not very well understood and a lot of resistance, a lot of resistance mm -hmm. to the, how do I invest time into something that I don't really understand the benefit of? And I don't really even see where it's going when that's taking me away, especially for salespeople, it's taking me away from dialing, from calling, from selling and i get paid by on that so i think that that's been a challenge and i think that what's interesting is that as as there's more awareness right i mean i love it i mean your podcast right the the revenue engine podcast is <laughs> i feel like you're you're popular you're one of the you know one of the, the the mavericks that's really starting to popularize the idea of what's possible and i think as there's more awareness there's more uh interest and to learn and to experiment and that's what i love what i'm seeing is that it's early still, very early, but there is more interest and more openness around, you know, what does this concept of marketing and sales alignment mean and how, how can it actually tangibly help our company? And I think it's still a little bit of a, you know, like, eh, it still seems kind of fuzzy, dozy, soft <laughs> stuff. I don't really know how it's going to help, but the openness brings the interest, which is going to, which is going to enable conversations, which is going to enable action. And that mm -hmm. the initial action, this is what happens, early movers, a lot of risk, those early adopters, a lot of risk, but big rewards. And once they start proving that it, there's actually real benefit, again, we've, been, we've shown this in, in our engagements, yeah. it works. It can generate, for very little investment, can generate amazing returns. But once that starts being popularized and, and seen more widely, it's going to become, all of a sudden, talking to sales and lobby is going to be the next hot hot ticket item. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, I love that. And I think, you know, with that better alignment, right, that partnership, you know, you've touched on, you know, how you've actually seen it benefit, you know, organizations, like what are some of those benefits that you've been seeing? It's outstanding, <laughs> right? When you actually, when you actually strip away. And again, I feel like a lot of, for a lot of folks and a number of companies, the challenge with sales and marketing alignment as a concept is that it just, they don't understand what it means. And yeah. so it's not tangible. And as a result, and then even those who are interested, when they start engaging in conversations about it, it what can happen is that it just seems like, okay, this is interesting, but I don't really see how it helps. So mm -hmm. what we've actually found is that, and again, the more conversations, the better, but really, if you can actually identify um, a, a, a specific place in the funnel where marketing and sales alignment can actually drive some tangible benefits and don't focus so much on marketing and sales alignment, but focus on the steps and the tactics mm -hmm. to, to convert that potential into real benefit for the company. You change the conversation, you change the game because you're actually demonstrating this is not just some fuzzy dozy concept um, where we're all just going to sit around a campfire, you know, and see Kumbaya <laughs> and talk about how great it is without actually realizing any results. Once you can actually show any organization, any leader, that there's actually tangible results that the organization can realize through marketing and sales alignment, 
now you're changing the game and now you're getting people to listen. So I'll give you a perfect example of this. The, if you look at marketing and sales alignment, I, I almost feel like, and again, I can kind of see, I can, because of the amount of time I've done this, the easiest place to look at for that benefit is in a hand in the handoff from marketing to sales, yeah. right? Because that's the most tangible, you know, and it's still kind of like a relay race. If you look at a relay race is, you know, everyone's just, it's and a relay race is essentially, um, um, a series of runners running and yeah. it's it would just be people running if it wasn't for the relay so if you, if someone if you weren't passing the baton passing the baton from one runner to the other is essentially the opportunity that's otherwise every runner is just about how fast the runners run it's how how effectively can you pass the baton that ultimately yeah. decides who wins in the same way, when you look at marketing and sales alignment, it's the passing of the lead from marketing to sales that has the biggest opportunity for initial uh, marketing and sales alignment that can actually bring the results. So if I look at historically, I'll tell you over the last 10 years, one of the, the lowest hanging fruits when it comes to this passing the baton is this fundamental disconnect in historically marketing has done lead generation, which is all about this person came to our booth, this person came to our webinar, this person wrote our white paper, this person submitted our form. And that doesn't mean they're interested, especially in this day and age, right? Yeah. However, in the old methodology, that's a lead and I'm sending it to sales. And what happens on the other side, sales is inundated. You go to a trade show, you get 500 people stopping by your booth to get a tchotchke. Next thing you know, sales gets 500 leads. They're not leads. Everybody in sales right. certainly knows they're not leads and they're not going to call them. And so you have this a lack of trust that's developed between marketing yeah. and sales and marketing is saying, why don't you look at my leads? Why don't you pick up my leads? We <laughs> work so hard and we spend so much money to generate them and sales is sitting on the other side and, and, and they're both right. But sales is sitting there being like, your leads suck. They're not yeah. leads. <laughs> they're names. Yep. You know, not everybody that fogs a mirror is a lead. Yeah. So I think, and so, so right there and then you have a very tangible disconnect, but because there's a silo, the disconnect is invisible. It appears mm -hmm. if you look at in each group, it's just griping in each group. But when you zoom out and you look at from marketing and sales alignment point of view, you start mm -hmm. realizing that there's, this is actually a real problem in the business. And with very little investment, if you engage sales and say, and say, we recognize as an organization, or as marketing, whoever's running this, we recognize that some of the leads that we're saying are not that good. We'd like mm -hmm. to change that. I mean, this is kind of like therapy 101, right? Yeah. We'd like <laughs> to change that. And we, we would love to, we're going to configure the leads that we send to you so they actually look like who you want to talk to. And then usually I ask a very simple question. You know, it's end of your day. Uh, I used to say it's 5 p.m., but then a number of sales people have pointed out to me, we always work. There's no 5 or 6 p.m. in sales. And I'm like, okay, fair. Yeah. It's end of your day. you got three leads in your, in your queue. You only have time to call one. Which one do you call? And I think that's a really good way to focus the conversation on what really matters. And you, yeah. get, you get a number of folks. Maybe it's the top performers. Maybe it's someone who's been there a long time. But you get them to tell you what those are then. You look and you do it very, again, data, any data analyst that's worth their salt can very quickly look at your opportunities and tell you mm -hmm. who, what's actually, what are the patterns of those opportunities. And you, you look at the, the matches between the two, you go back to sales and you validate, here's who we're going to be sending you, but, but, here's, but and here's the catch, here's the alignment piece. We will send you only the highest quality leads that you told us you want to get, but we're going to ask for one thing in return. 
every lead that we use, we send you, you have to look at, you have, and you yeah. have to either disqualify. That's totally fine. Tell us that it sucked. Tell us why it sucked. So disqualify yeah. it with a reason or qualify it. You don't have to convert it, but you just qualify it. And again, we can create a stage called sales accepted lead. We can click a button that just says, okay, I, I get it or whatever else I, I approve. And now what's happening again, very little work is happening here. But what's happening is that we're developing a language of communication between these silos. And that language is, I will send you better leads. You're going to tell me if they're good or not. And so over time, we don't have to talk anymore because now we have signals. We're sending yep. signals to one another and we can continually improve the scoring based of these leads and how, what we're sending you. And you're going to, again, you're going to keep looking at them. You're going to, and so as long as we keep improving the scoring, and again, I think we're going to be able over time to drastically improve the results. And that's what we've, you know, we had a client win an award and it, it was for, for us, we did this very thing. We cut their leads. And again, this is almost sacrilegious to say in any organization, we're going to cut your leads by 50%. No, no, we cut their leads by 50%. You know what happened? They had a 10% increase in opportunities for a very yeah. simple reason. Sales called everyone, and they actually had more time to have productive conversations. They converted more. This is a fantastic example of the kind of advantage you can get when you apply um, sales and marketing alignment as part of a bigger revenue engine. Again, instrumenting your funnel, understanding where the disconnects are and then systematically improving conversions in different points of the funnel. Yeah, yeah, no, I, you know, I, you're totally speaking my language, Z, and I'm, you probably see me just nodding and smiling because I've had so many conversations around this, and you would think when you talk to organizations that everyone's doing this. Of course, they're scoring their leads. Of course, they know who they should be selling to. They're only passing good leads, right, to sales. But when you actually dig deep into talking to a lot of these organizations, they really don't, or at least don't do it enough, like they don't take the time to really dig deep into defining that. And they also forget to re to continue to iterate, right. And improve the quality. <laughs> and my dog is passionate. Absolutely. And let's talk about why, why this is, I think the key question is why it's because no one is responsible for that. Right. And again, why, because of the, the, the historical silos, no one is responsible for that. And this is where, I mean, I think you start looking at, how marketing operations and sales operations are evolving and where the role of potentially revenue operations comes in is that all of a sudden you're going to have a team that's responsible and accountable for looking at this and owning it. Yep. You are taking all my thunder, <laughs> but oh, I, I'm right. like okay. constantly, no, I'm constantly on my soapbox about this alignment, as you know. And so I think, you know, I, I love the fact that you're, you know, you having so much experience working with so many organizations, you've actually proven that value. And I think that's having that sort of holistic view of having somebody, you know, taking that step back and keeping, you know, keeping both, um, you know, kind of the entire revenue process aligned is really important. So let's talk about, you know, I think, you know, you have a chance to partner with so many different organizations, you know, including really large enterprise companies, right? Intel, Samsung, and I'm sure you get to see a lot of, you know, the good and the bad 
right? When it comes to technology and to systems, right? For revenue teams. Um, so you talked a lot about sort of this alignment and the, you know, leads and passing the handoffs, which is so incredibly important. But what are some of the other things maybe that you see organizations doing right when it comes to, you know, actually building out their systems and technology? And maybe what do you see them doing wrong? Well, see, this is what's <laughs> going to be interesting. The way you phrase the question, here's, I, 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 my answer might be, uh, somewhat unexpected. I, you know what's interesting is that, as, uh, and I'm surprised myself as a technologist to say this, it's not the technology. It really yeah. isn't. <laughs> you know, most of these organizations are actually pretty good at yeah. you know a, evaluating you know, various types of systems that are out there and how they how they could solve some of the issues that they have, and then they're very decent at rolling these systems out within the organization. Where the disconnect, I feel, oftentimes happens, and and this is actually where it happens more so often, more often in larger organizations, more often than smaller, is in the is in that there's there's often a disconnect between why they buy the tool and how they're actually end up using it, because and then this is also partially the sophistication of how you know technology sales have evolved over the last ten years, is that you know a lot of technology companies are no longer selling to IT teams. They're selling to business stakeholders. This has yes. kind of been the evolution of SaaS software, and so what's happened is that you know that the 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 sophistication of these software companies and how they're selling has also gone significantly more complex. And what's happening is that they're selling stories, they're selling vision, they're selling big ideas around what is possible. Yes. Good for them, right? I mean, again, if you go back again, why did Eloqua write a book called The Revenue Engine? It was the same idea. They were painting an idea of what's possible only if you buy their software, right? So, okay, great. And so let's say people buy into the, because again, a lot of these stories are very good. They're very effective at painting a very rosy picture about where the world is going and what's possible. Now, and this is where the disconnect often comes in, the company, and the, again, no, no one's a fool. Generally, we're dealing on, you know, People who are, who are leaders in, in, in most organizations are fairly well-educated, fairly intelligent, driven folks who want the best for their companies. And so they, they see the potential, they hear about the potential, not just from the software vendor, from the analysts, from their peers. And they're like, oh, this is something worthwhile. They go, okay, great. I'm gonna, we're going to buy the software. They buy the software. And then they go, okay, great. We're going to roll out the software. They roll out the software. And then after a year or two, they start seeing, well, what happened? We're not seeing the results that we were yeah. that we were promised. But again, the disconnect there is that rolling out the software is the first step. The vision is like step number four. Yeah. But no one talks about, especially at the software <laughs> companies, are not talking about the steps two, three, two, three, and four to actually achieve the vision. Because if they talked about it, they would have to talk about if, if for every dollar you spend in technology, you should be spending probably three to five dollars on services enablement and knowledge mm -hmm. that will enable you to actually move up that chain and achieve division. So what's happened then what happens is there's just disappointment. And then questions start being asked. And then you start looking at okay, what is it going to take for us to get there? And then you start realizing there's actually it's complex. And we may not have the staff, we may not have the knowledge, we may not have the capabilities to mm -hmm. actually achieve division. And now you get disappointment. And now you have, and then, and then oftentimes, and this is where I feel like oftentimes this is kind of the, 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 the pivotal moment. And this is, I feel also where some companies go, it was the wrong technology and they're going to, they switch to another technology and yes. they restart the cycle. And I feel like that's kind of the negative feedback loop. Uh, the other thing that happens, they go like, well, they settle 
for what they mm-hmm. got rather than what they bought originally bought because mm-hmm. of the realities in the organization. Hey, I can't now allocate all that extra funding. I, maybe I could have initially, but now I can't allocate all the extra funding to be able to achieve it. So let's just settle where we are. We have bigger problems to solve. And I feel like that's probably the biggest disconnect that we see in companies, large and small, um, around that disconnect between the technology is being bought and their ultimate vision for why the technology was bought. But yeah. all the, again, what I will say, when you look at the disconnect between one and four, those steps, mm-hmm. um, it's, 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 it's almost never the technology, it's the business process. Yes. And, and the methodologies <laughs> of use of these technologies that will actually help yes. you generate the results, right? What I think is fascinating, I'll just share this, like what we found, we found a fascinating academic model for technology adoption called SAMR. And it's an mm-hmm. acronym, and it basically it's an acronym for the four stages of technology adoption. It's absolutely fascinating. It was developed in academia to actually help schools integrate technology into the curriculum and into the, into learning, but it actually works exceedingly well in companies in business around companies adopting technology. So four stages: SAMR, substitution, augmentation, um, re, uh, modification, and redefinition. Those are the four stages of technology adoption. That's how, those are the stages you need to go through to go from substitution, I swapped out my old technology for the new one, to, to redefinition, I'm achieving the vision that this technology offers. And mm-hmm. I, again, I, I'm happy to elaborate, but also I, it'll probably, you know, it could probably take five minutes to kind of get in, go through the whole model. I, I will just say, look up SAMR. It's absolutely a fascinating model. If you're interested to see, Irregardless of what technology you're buying, what are the four steps that pretty much every individual enterprise needs to go through to actually realize the full benefit of the technology? Look at the SAMR uh, technology adoption model. It is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, yeah. That's a great recommendation. Definitely. I'm going to have to take a look at that. But yeah, I, I tell people that all the time as well. They always ask me, oh, what's the perfect tech stack? You know, what should I be buying? And it's not the technology that's going to necessarily solve your problems. You need to have your business processes well-defined. You need to have your infrastructure, you know, your data infrastructure well, um, well-defined as well. And then the technology enables you to optimize, right? And be more efficient and, you know, and be able to minimize some of that um, human touch. But a lot of times I think people buy the technology and to your point, they either don't realize the full value, they're using it for something that wasn't the original intent, or they, it's a force kind of forces them to now look at their business processes, right? Because now they've got to configure the systems and then it delays the X, you know, delays the um, ROI on that technology because you're spending, now you're spending your time defining what your processes should actually look at, look like. So I love that. I love that. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about tech stack. I mean, we talked about over the last several years, I mean, this go to market tech stack has just exploded. I mean, there is literally a piece of, a piece of technology for every single part of the funnel, right? And more, um, you know, what are you seeing, I guess, maybe in the market when it comes to how revenue teams are approaching technology? We talked about this a little bit already, but where do you see it headed? Any predictions? Big questions. Yeah, predictions are uh, always uh, <laughs> much tougher, especially for I feel like more practical, realistic folks like such as myself. I mean, I think if, uh, so. Let's just quickly go through what's happened over the last ten years. Right? There's been yeah. this absolute explosion of technology being developed, right, for marketing and sales teams. Um, mm. And so, what's interesting is I feel like companies reacted by starting to look especially around marketing and you can start to see sales is kind of you know has been moving i think marketing was kind of 
this explosion first happened in MarTech, right? And then mm -hmm. sales tech has been kind of really brewing over the last five, seven years as well. Um, but what's happened is that there's initially a lot of, again, similar similar experience, a lot of initial excitement. It's that it's the you know it's that Gartner curve, right? Yeah. The hype cycle. A lot of initial excitement. Companies were buying technology left, right, and center. Technology is going and. But they're doing it under wrong pretext. Technology is going to solve all our problems. Again, I'm going to keep going exactly. back to the same point. It's not the technology. It's not the technology. The, yeah. Ultimately, it's it's what you're trying to do and what your business process needs to be to try to do. And then the technology just be, should become an accelerator. That's um, right. So, so, but if we look at that, there was this initial mania almost where like yeah. technology is going to solve all our problems. We're going to buy large tech stacks and build large tech stacks, right? I mean, there's there's literally a conference and an award around, you know, I think it's what stackies or I forget, like around <laughs> what your tech stack should look like. And for good reason, right? Companies have bought like five, 10, 15, 20 different solutions, and they're all trying to figure out what's the right combination, right? What are the right solutions? And then there's a and then once the mania passed a little bit and you started throwing the, the throw of a disillusionment, you start looking, okay, what are we really we're spending a lot of money on this tech? What is it really? producing in terms of results. And again, because of what yeah. we just talked about, that you just, you know, you, you oftentimes you didn't actually get to the ultimate, that redefinition stage of how you're actually achieving the vision of what's possible. The results are not, you know, I'll say abysmal in a lot of cases or a really non-quantifiable result. So now there's a lot of pressure all of a sudden, why are, can we redirect this budget and can we spend it more wisely? And I think that there's been a little bit in the last few years, there's been a little bit of that kind of sobering to maybe we don't need a technology for every little problem that we have. Let's actually start going back to looking at what's the core? What do we really need at the core? And then you start looking, and I would argue if, if you're trying to manage your funnel, you really need, there's really three main pieces. I mean, CMS is a no brainer, right? Like, I mean, that mm -hmm. you ever need a CMS, I think that's a kind of a understood. Marketing automation has been kind of the rapid adoption. So I think very well understood. You need a marketing automation platform. If you're in, if you're a B2B company involved in a considered purchase lifecycle, and you need, I would argue, not the CRM that you know that our our our, <laughs> our our older colleagues used, right, from the '90s, but you need a modern sales automation platform. And I feel like those are your that's the trifecta. Those are your three core systems. Then you and then once you get those really operating. I would argue once your funnel is instrument, you understand the conversions and you actually now start looking to optimize the results in the conversion in a particular stage. Now you start mm -hmm. looking at which which point solution is, is going to actually help us to, to improve the results in that particular stage of the funnel. So again, if we think we can grow uh, in um, conversion in the sales part of the funnel, maybe we start looking at some sales tech. What are the challenges, mm -hmm. right? Is it, is it around follow-up? Is it around what we're saying? Is it around how effectively we're executing demos? Is, or is it on the marketing side? Is it how we're presenting content? Is it how we're actually engaging with our audience? Is it the channels that we're using and which kind of tools can actually help us get in front of an audience uh, across more channels, different channels, et cetera? Um, I think that that, and to me, that's really, and it's interesting. I mean, if you look at, you know, in MarTech, right, Scott Brinker has been a bit of a, you know, I don't know if Messiah is a strong word, but certainly, you know, <laughs> someone who's actually had a very influential voice in helping follow how the technology has evolved. You know, they're starting to look at more kind of ecosystems, right? And so it's almost like yep. an organization that's going to develop out of some level of agreement around which tools are actually really needed and how well they work, which tools work well together. And so to simplify this, 
this almost kind of maddening situation around <laughs> yeah. which out of the 10,000 do I buy? Which do I need? What's going to help me? Yep. Yep. Yeah, I agree. And I think there's so many, as you said, kind of, there's so many point solutions. I think we'll continue to see a lot more consolidation, right? A lot of these technologies that will meet multiple use cases and multiple pieces of the funnel. Um, yeah, we'll see how, how our predictions uh, pan out. Um, you know, as a RevOps leader, right, a lot of my role is around change management. Right. Especially in earlier stage organizations and then obviously in today's environment where that rate of change is accelerated. Um, at Mass Engines, you use an established change management framework, right? And this is especially critical as you work with organizations on projects that are, you know, oftentimes very transformational, or even if when you're just having tweaks, right, kind of here and there. Um, can you talk a little bit more about your approach to change management? And then what have you seen work effectively? versus not as effectively. <laughs> and I, I think number one, what I will say, and I love the fact you bring this up, is, uh, is I, I see this consistently, is that organizations um, neglect or minimize the importance of change management. Yes. In, and, in, and this is becoming only more relevant as the pace of change increases. I mean, when you look at, again, let's say our, you know, the previous generation, Right. Like our, our let's say our parents, uh, you know, the, the pace of change, you know, things might have changed over the course of their careers. What we're seeing now, the pace of change is accelerated to the point where there's like two or three cycles of change in, within each of our careers. That's right. And so the pace of change is right. And you've seen the same thing. Right. It's just it's mm -hmm. almost it's it's becoming challenging to keep up with. And so as a result, then we start kind of ignoring <clears throat> some of it. Because it is so challenging to keep up. And again, it's almost like, again, it's triggering that natural kind of defense mechanism. Like, I don't yeah. know if this change is good anymore. Uh, but again, it's hard to deny and suppress something that's kind of weird side or going through together, right? The pace of technological advancement and, and change is real. So yeah. to go back to change management, change management is, is becoming, and I, I'm, I'm really glad to see there's a lot more openness an interest at the corporate mm -hmm. level around change management. And I think, again, this is because there's this realization how much, how real change is to all of us and to especially to organizations. So when we started seeing this and we, st we started seeing, a, you know, projects that kind of stalled uh, in adoption, we would build amazing solutions and we would roll them out. And while we were operating for a company, it worked really well. However, when we try to kind of be like, okay, well, it's time for you to yeah. take this over and operate yourself. So you're not constantly, you know, paying us and we're, you know, we're doing it for you. We need to integrate this solution into your organization. Now you start getting adoption challenges. And oftentimes what we've realized it is because there's no change management. And oftentimes there's not the right roles. And because the change management was involved, we didn't identify the right roles and the importance of that to the organization. And so ultimately then that, adoption piece falls somewhere and the results are not nearly as 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 impressive as for example when we built a solution when we were running it so so we started looking at you know what are you know we started looking at what what methodologies are out there who has done this before and we actually did find it's interesting right it's uh, i think in like kind of the 70s 60s 70s 80s definitely i think 70s and 80s I think as change started, it's become, again, it start, paces start accelerating. There started academically, there was, uh, you know, especially around, you know, the, um, I would say the, the academics around business thought 
started exploring mm-hmm. this idea of change management and how how what kind of frameworks uh, can be used to facilitate change management to improve it. We found a few models we loved. Cotter, I mean, Cotter, you know, Cotter is just I feel like you know uh, one of the you know really kind of one of those deep thinkers uh, from the era. Really, you know. Uh, well-known, established, and uh, we loved his model. His model made so much sense, um, and so we've adopted his model. And again, it's 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 a seven-stage uh, model of change management, and it's very simple. I'll just summarize. I won't go through each stage, but I'll summarize. Essentially, the whole idea is that the first two or three stages, you're not doing anything other than creating consensus around yeah. the need for change and and getting your team, getting your allies, getting your team on board and then starting to communicate the change. That's it, you're not doing anything other than laying the groundwork for change. And then you start getting into the rest of it is really about now that you've laid the groundwork, you got your allies, you understand why you're doing it, and you start communicating. Now it's about follow through. And there's the, the, all the other steps around how do you actually then successfully now you know, take it uh, through completion. And again, it's a fantastic model. We've been using it and we found it to be very effective. I would say it's a similar situation with sales qualification models. There's a lot of sales qualification models out there. I think Bant is probably one of the better knowns, but I, I'm at, I think there's probably five or six really well-known ones out there. And what's interesting is, and I think that you know, if you really kind of push the envelope on a, and you start pushing people, which one's the best? Anyone that knows more than two will actually agree that it actually doesn't matter which one you use as long as you have your as long as you're consistently actually using it. And I would say it's a similar thing for change management. As long as you're using some kind of a framework that's helping bring, manage the pace of change and produce the results, then it doesn't really matter whether it's Cotter's, which is we adopted, or another model. Yeah, yeah. I'm just furiously like nodding my head because the same thing with the sales methodologies. People always ask, is it Bant or Medic or MedPick or what should I be using? Or, you know, and, and the, the point is it's different for every organization and depending on your selling model and, you know, your sales motion. But once you pick one, more importantly, is define it and use it, right? <laughs> and follow it. So... I got it. Well, so as you know, as I think about the revenue engine, I think about this podcast, I always hope that others will be able to really learn how to, you know, accelerate revenue growth, right? And power that revenue engine. So maybe from your perspective, you know, what are the top, you know, couple of things, maybe two or three things that you think, you know, leaders should really be thinking about today to really help drive revenue growth? And even more importantly, at this point in our market, right? Revenue retention. Uh-huh. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, the cycle, right? The cycles um, of the economy and the kind of the focus. I think it's, it's a great, it's a great point. So I certainly have um, biases in certain points of view. Um, <laughs> what I will, what I, so here's my view: is that I think what's interesting is that if you look at like marketing continues to to evolve at an absolute breakneck pace, and it, it's for a very simple reason. You know, the globalization has ushered uh, much more competition. Um, and it's also, I feel like it's it's baked in the nature of marketing, right? Is that if, you know, there's, there's uh, once someone starts doing something that works, everyone starts copying and all of a sudden doesn't work anymore. So That's the right. need to reinvent what you're doing is so critical. So I would absolutely say the focus around marketing, in my view, in this day and age, should be on modern demand generation, continuing to like move away from traditional kind of focus on just a, a 
awareness and lead generation into focusing on the buyer. And again, remember, it's an informed, empowered buyer out there. They're in control. They have access to information. So really, our focus should be to further empower and, and engage with them, give them the information that we that they that they're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more so I think that around the demand generation, the focus should absolutely be on developing meaningful content. And the meaningful content shouldn't be about what our product does. It should be about the problem that the customer is trying to solve, the pain that they're experiencing, the different approaches to solving that pain. Obviously, you know, it's understood you're always going to bake a little bit of your own perspective into when you present the solutions. But in our experience, the more impartial you are and the better your content is, the more it will replicate itself like a good idea. It'll become more viral and, and ultimately, if they're consuming your content, you're going to be always top of mind. Even if you're talking about competitive approaches to solving that problem, you're always going to have a leg up because they're consuming your content. And they're always going to ultimately, when they're looking for solutions, you're going to be top of the list. So to me, that's a no-brainer. I think on the sales side, this is what's interesting. I do think a lot of the folks needs to be in marketing. I think sales is becoming more difficult in some ways, right? Because of the empowered buyer, the informed buyer. And we're seeing this, and I'm seeing this time more and more is that you know a lot of times buyers just telling says I, I don't I don't want to talk send me some info yeah right because I, I don't want you to influence me I'm not there yet so that that shift is is really I I think is starting to impact impact sales so it's it's one of those things this is again we go back to why sales and marketing alignment is so important is because there's an element of marketing needs needs to do a lot more but they will be able to do it a lot more effectively if they can if they can leverage some of the sales skill sets and insights and which ultimately help sales because if marketing can produce more qualified leads, there are people who are actually informed, ready to buy. Now all of a sudden sales can actually do what they really do best, which is build a relationship and help, help guide the client towards the right selection for, for them to move forward. Um, I, I, again, and for me, I'm, I'm, this is where I will say I'm currently biased towards this idea that, an effective revenue engine can help give you a new lever to grow revenue in your organization. And the beautiful thing about it is you do not need more leads. You don't, you're, you're, it's essentially <laughs> about true. getting more out of what you're getting currently, right? So if you're mm-hmm. getting a thousand leads and again, in most organizations, the conversion ratio from top to bottom of the funnel is about two to 4%, yeah. right? It, it's very low. So again, just think about it. If subdivide that funnel into let's say 10 different stages across the whole thing, if I can help improve even by a few percentage points in a few point in a few of these uh, stages, and all of a sudden I get you from getting a two percent to let's say three or four mm-hmm. percent, we're substantially increasing your revenue with without spending money on additional ads or additional sales reps. So I, I'm I'm really biased, and I think that's a fantastic, especially if, as you enter a recession, the message isn't really about hey you got to spend more money on ads, and especially as there's more concern around how effective like advertiser uh, advertising driven growth actually is Mm -hmm. Um, the idea that you can actually spend substantially less money to actually generate returns based on increasing the conversions of the folks who are already buying who are already interested Mm -hmm. Uh, they're maybe just not currently they're falling through because maybe maybe they're not interacting with your with your con maybe you're not reaching out at the right time right so everybody knows this if you call someone ten, you know, five minutes after they submit the form, A, you're more likely to get them, B, you're much more likely to convert them because you're you're but is that possible? Maybe not. Mm-hmm. But you know, even if you follow up within an hour or two, it's gonna be a lot better than following up 24 or 48 hours later. 
So again, it's things like that. I really think that ultimately managing conversions is a winning formula, irregardless of the economy, but especially in a recessionary economy where there's less investment to go around. So all of a sudden it becomes, how do we do more with less? Do more with less by maximizing the results with what you already do. Yep. I love that. I love that. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Um, but as we wrap up and before I let you go, I always ask all my guests two things. One, what is the one thing about you that others might be surprised to learn? And two, what is the one thing that you really want everyone to know about you? Hmm. <laughs> sometimes it's the it. same thing. I, I Sometimes it's the same thing, but you know, something that others might be surprised and something that you really want people to know. I think that for me, I'm, uh, I'm very optimistic about the future. And I think it's easy, you know, in, in, and maybe it's always been like this the way, but it's, I think in our day and age, it's easy to be bombarded. Like there's so much negativity around like all the problems that are all around us. And yet yeah. when you look at the big picture, we're, it's never been a better time to be human. We're more, we're safer, more comfortable, uh, well-nourished, you know, living the longest we've ever lived. I think we're in such an amazing place uh, in our evolution. And I'm, I, I can only say reach for the stars and I would love, I'd love to see where, where we can go. And again, you can see a little bit of that, my passion for technology. I feel like an evolution of our species as a whole um, is, is, is boundless. I, I think there's no limits to where we can go and we've already demonstrated it, how far we've come. It's just, it's, it's about embracing I think a, lo- a large part is embracing change and and change management helps there embracing change <laughs> and and, uh, and 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 leaning in leaning forward and looking into the future and how do we how do we do better. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Thank you so much Z for joining me and just so much incredible insights and everything you you've said today has really resonated with me and I know it's going to resonate with others. Um, but super helpful and just appreciate your time. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you Rosalind. <laughs> 